Hey, bitches, we made it. It's the finale of season one. Thank you so much for listening and giving us your support. I've absolutely loved going on this journey with you and hope you got as much from it as we did. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and follow us on our social media feeds so you'll be updated on the other projects we have in the works and the release date for season two. Yes, there will be a season two, and we have even bigger stories coming up then. Lots of you have been asking how you could support the show, and a quick, cheap way to do that is to give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Google Podcasts, which is soon switching to YouTube. Heck, give us a five-star review on all of them. We can use all the stars we can get. As far as the change from Google to YouTube is concerned, I'm not sure how that's going to work out just yet. That's something that we'll tackle in the next few months. So if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, you'll want to do that too. Believe me, that's a train wreck you won't want to miss. And help us spread the word. Tell your friends about our show and it's totally bingeable content. Heck, tell your frenemies too. They won't catch on. If you want to help us even more, be sure to subscribe to our Toil and Trouble Media Patreon page. We have a link at toilandtroublemedia.com you can find it on Patreon itself. In the next several weeks, we'll be adding more content as well as raw footage and behind-the-scenes peaks. Pretty power's a thing, but it only gets us so far. And finally, one more announcement. We're releasing a new podcast soon, Haunted Hustle, where we explore grifters and criminals who use the supernatural against their victims. It's true crime caught dead-handed, and I'm sure you'll love it. So, without further ado, here's the season one finale. Thanks for listening. The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn this ship another way Feel it in the darkness Sailing right into those jagged cliffs Yeah Some say we've always been insane Hey, life's a foolish game Life's a foolish game not even athletes are immune from the hyper-scrutiny women face. Ask anyone who the greatest male athlete is, and you're likely to get several, even whole teams. Ask the same question about women, and the list shrinks considerably. To be recognized, we must be the best. And all too often, there's only room for one. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the rivalries that help define them. This week, blind ambition and the desire to win result in an FBI investigation, multiple arrests, and a whack heard round the world. This is the story of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Tanya Maxine Harding was born on November 12, 1970, in Portland, Oregon, to working-class parents Al and Lavana Harding. The pairing was less than ideal. 
Al was an alcoholic who floated around from job to job, more interested in being the fun parent than the disciplinarian. Lavana was a gruff, no-nonsense woman who had been married five times before Tanya was born. When Tanya was three years old, her parents took her to a mall where she was fascinated by the skaters at an indoor ice rink. It was all she could think about. Soon after, Lavana enrolled her in group lessons with a pair of secondhand skates. Little Tanya proved such a natural that her teacher recommended private lessons. Even at a rate of $25 a week, the cost was steep. Lavana took on extra hours and tables as a waitress in order to pay for them. When she surpassed those lessons, the child was referred to professional skating coach Diane Rawlinson, who saw her potential. She also saw the financial need and agreed to subsidize costs where she could, buying Tanya proper skates and often reaching out to friends and businesses to find sponsorships. As she improved, she entered the competition circuit where she met other girls, like Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy was born on October 13, 1969, in Stoneham, Massachusetts. The baby of the family, Nancy's upbringing couldn't have been more different than Tanya's. She was supported and loved by devoted parents Daniel and Brenda, a stay-at-home mother and welder, doted on by her two older brothers, and cheered by a network of extended family, aunts, uncles, and cousins, who regularly attended her competitions. The Kerrigans did everything they could to support their children. Daniel wanted to give his family everything, occasionally taking extra jobs to pay for his children's latest interests. When the boys played hockey at the local ice rink, Nancy would often tag along. It was there she first learned to skate. In time, the little girl would differentiate herself when she wanted to learn to figure skate. But private rink time and lessons were expensive, so the family put off formal training until Nancy was eight. When she remained determined, her dad traded out the costs for driving the rink Samboni. She won her first competition at the Boston Open a year after her first private lesson. At the age of 16, she switched to the famed coaching team of Evie and Marty Scottfold. The shift changed the course of her career and made her an Olympian. Under Rawlinson's tutelage, Tanya thrived. She was 12 years old when she landed her first triple Lutz, a tricky maneuver in which the skater takes off and lands on opposite skates. But in contrast, her home life was a dumpster fire. She moved eight different times into six different communities before she was 18. It was hard to feel stable, to make friends, never feeling like she had anything in common, and never being in one place long enough to do so. Her parents struggled as well. Al bounced in and out of the home, working a number of jobs in order to get ahead, driving trucks, managing apartments, and working at a bait-and-tackle store. In spite of his inconsistent presence, he remained his daughter's best friend. He gave her her first gun when she was five taught her to hunt and fish and fix a transmission. That left Lavana to do the heavy lifting. Often having to support herself and her daughter alone, there wasn't much fuel left in the emotional gas tank for compassion. If Tanya fell and scraped her knee, she was more likely to tell the child to suck it up and walk it off. In a later interview with Oprah Winfrey, Tanya claimed her mother drank frequently and subjected her to physical and emotional abuse calling her fat and ugly, and at least once dragging her off the ice and beating her with a hairbrush. Lavana has disputed this in interviews of her own, so it's hard to draw an accurate conclusion, 
But it's still fair to say that Tanya was raised in an environment of hardship and turmoil, and it definitely affected her craft. Skating was her refuge. When her parents' marriage fell apart in 1985, Tanya poured everything into the grueling sport, eventually dropping out of high school her sophomore year. The time out of school helped her develop quickly. She finished in sixth place at the 1986 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, and she only became stronger as she got older. Tanya came in fifth at her next two U.S. championships, as well as snagging second place at the 1987 International Skate America competition. While Tanya used skating as an escape, Nancy's family was the main motivating factor behind her success. She understood how hard her father worked so she could follow her Olympic dream and made sure to work just as hard to reach that goal. She set her alarm to wake up at 4 o'clock each morning to practice before heading off to school. Her freshman year, she entered the National Collegiate Championship and took home the grand prize. In 1989, she entered the U.S. Championships, where she finished in fifth place, two spots behind Tanya, who took the bronze. In 1986, Tanya was skating at the Clackamas Town Center when she met a man who would change her life forever, Jeff Galuli. She was 15. He was 17. They later exchanged phone numbers, and he called and invited her out to the movies. Their first date was chaperoned by her father. Two years later, the couple moved in together, but it was far from the happily ever after she was looking for. In later interviews, Tanya said that once they were under the same roof, Galuli began abusing her. Still, of the many lessons she learned from her parents, recognizing a bad relationship wasn't one of them. In March 1990, when Tanya was 19, they got married. Lavana wasn't crazy about it and had no problem rubbing it in her face. Quote, I knew Jeff had a violent streak. He tried to break down the door because he thought Tanya had gone out with another boy. She may have been on to something because 15 months later, Tanya filed for divorce and sought a restraining order in order to keep Galuli away. She wrote in her petition, He wrenched my arm and my wrist and he pulled my hair and shoved me. I recently found out he bought a shotgun, and I'm scared for my safety. A police report filed the following month quoted Tanya as saying that Galuli cornered her in a boatyard and threatened, quote, I think we should break your legs and end your career. But neither her career nor her connection to Galuli would end so easily. In October, she decided to reconcile and withdrew the divorce, claiming they were still in love and seeking counseling. She said, quote, I know he's changed. I see it in his eyes, and I believe in him. I don't want to lose him. I really don't. While Tanya was tangling with divorces and submitting and withdrawing protection orders, Nancy was affirming her place as a budding star in the skating world. At the 1991 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, she took home the bronze. She rode the wave of momentum at the World Championship, where she faced off with the greatest skaters in the world. Again, Nancy showed her chops as she finished with another bronze medal. As great a year as Nancy had, Tanya continued to dominate. At the U.S. Championships, Tanya landed a triple axel, the first American woman to do so. She walked away with a perfect score and stood on the podium above Nancy with a gold medal. At the World Championships, she landed another triple axel and finished second to Christy Yamaguchi for a sweep. At the 1991 Skate America, Tanya again pulled off another incredible triple axel, this time with a few other tricks, including a double toe loop. But this would be the last time she would do so in competition. 
As the Galuli drama continued, Tanya's performances declined. Tanya placed behind Nancy in each competition of the 1991-1992 season. She took home the bronze at the 1992 U.S. Championships, but delivered an underwhelming routine at the World Championships, finishing in sixth place. She would miss her opportunity for an Olympic podium that year by finishing in fourth. Meanwhile, Nancy was in the midst of the best streak she ever had. She silvered at both the U.S. and World Championships, qualifying for the Olympic team. Her first run at her dream didn't disappoint either. She captured bronze as Christy Yamaguchi took the gold medal. Christy had already decided that this was her last Olympics. With her retiring, the American skating crown was up for grabs. Her departure was good news for Nancy. She easily outskated the competition at the 1993 U.S. Championships. But while Nancy was collecting medals, Tanya was racking up court filings. On March 10, 1992, she was involved in a roadside altercation with another female motorist back in Portland. The conflict turned physical quickly. The first deputy on the scene observed Tanya holding a baseball bat after breaking the motorist's eyeglasses. The incident ended in apologies, and no criminal charges were ever filed. In March and July of 1993, the police were called to Tanya and Galuli's apartment after neighbors complained about the couple's loud arguments. In an affidavit submitted that summer, Tanya went on to explain, quote, It had been an abusive relationship for the past two years. He has assaulted me physically with his open hand and fist, put me down to the floor on several occasions. As a result, she was granted another restraining order, filed for divorce, and for all outward appearances, tried to move on with her life. She also began dating Tom Arendt, who spoke to a reporter for the Aragonian, claiming she would complain about Galuli, yet still contacted him often. She couldn't stop talking to him, he said. Around the same time, another man from Tanya's gym told the Aragonian she offered to pay him to take care of Galuli and, quote, slap him around a little. He said the offer offended him, and he declined. On August 28, 1993, Tanya and Galuli were granted a divorce, just in time for the cycle to repeat. Ten days later, Tanya requested through her lawyer to lift the restraining order. Yep, they wanted to give it another try. To curious reporters, Tanya explained, we're trying to get the divorce annulled, adding, I'm definitely married. But wouldn't you know it, repeating the same mistakes led to the same conclusions. On October the 2nd, at approximately 3 in the morning, neighbors called the police after hearing the couple arguing outside, followed by the sound of a single gunshot. Bearing Tanya had been shot, witnesses reported seeing Galuli pick her up and place her in a truck before speeding away. A responding officer found and stopped the truck and discovered a shotgun and a 9mm Beretta pistol, both of which had recently been fired. When the officers interviewed the couple separately about what happened, their stories didn't match. Galuli claimed the gun misfired when he was carrying it. Tanya told the cops she'd fired the gun, but was afraid to come forward over worry about the publicity. After hearing the yarn she spun, Galuli quickly changed his story. In version number two, he said she'd been moving her possessions into his truck when they started an argument over his former girlfriend. It was just a misunderstanding. He declined to press charges, and the couple was evicted the following month for failing to pay rent. As 1994 and the next Winter Olympic season rolled around, our girls vied to be America's next top figure skater. 
both put in the time and paid their dues. Through determination and countless sacrifices, both had earned the right to be there. They had put in thousands of hours on the ice, driven hundreds of miles for competitions. The public had grown to recognize their names and faces as well. Each skater began to garner attention, not only from sports media channels, but mainstream news as well. But with the attention came comparisons and invented tensions. Kerrigan and Harding, two top figure skaters with completely different looks, styles, and personalities. It was the yin and yang of figure skating. Nancy, grace and elegance. Tanya, aggression and athleticism. It wasn't surprising that both women played the press to their benefit. Figure skating doesn't pay well, you know. Nancy reaped the rewards of her photogenic beauty to score lucrative sponsorship deals with companies like Campbell's, Revlon, and Reebok, pleased to relieve some of the financial burden her parents continued to shoulder. Lacking that same kind of luster herself, Tanya generated interest by pushing a working-class angle, casting herself as an underdog and Nancy as the favorite. Leaning into the image of a blue-collar skater in a white-collar world, a complete fabrication since Nancy's family wasn't exactly rolling in the dough either, Tanya played down her natural talent and athletic prowess. Her followers emotionally related and responded, forming a tight-knit tribe of diehard fans. She further fed interest by alerting the media to her schedule and letting them take pictures of her practices. Reporters remarked on her lack of sophistication and polish, noting it was as if she had left it all out there for everyone to see. She wanted that gold medal and the money that came with it and would go to extraordinary lengths to get it. The question remained, how far? It's amazing what a short skirt and a tightly laced pair of skates will bring out in a dirt bag. By the end of 1993, figure skaters preparing to represent their respective countries at the Olympics were submitting to drug tests, abstaining from sweets, and going to bed at some crazy early hour only to get up at an even crazier early hour to practice. On top of that, these athletes had other tasks, namely fending off weirdos. Germany's Katarina Witt received threatening and disturbing messages from an unbalanced gentleman eager to win the skater's attention by sending her obscene messages and letters. She reported it to authorities, and the pervy predator was remanded to a psychiatric institution. Tanya, too, claimed to have received a death threat, which she told reporters caused her to withdraw from the Northwest Regional Championship held right in her hometown. In response, she and her off-again, on-again, sometimes husband began traveling with a bodyguard. Jeff Eckert. A personal friend of the couple's, Eckert was a curious choice of protection professionals for one who feared for her life. In his mid-twenties, Eckert was an odd duck who boasted constantly about being involved with asset protection and hostage retrieval missions overseas. He frequently greeted people by telling them he had just returned from an assignment in Kenya or how he had to catch a red-eye to New Zealand the following day. But he didn't fool anyone. He drove a run-down 1976 Mercury and the corporate headquarters of his company, World Bodyguard Services, was housed in the spare bedroom of his parents' home. Yep. No matter what, I'm sure Tanya slept soundly after that decision. Nancy hadn't opted for such measures. No one had ever threatened her. She focused on her training and repeating the success she'd had at the last U.S. championships. 
On January 6th, as she prepared for another day of intense practice, Nancy was walking down a corridor at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit when a man approached her. But a whole lot happened before that. The plot that later implicated Galuli and a handful of other Mensa rejects was hatched in early December 1993 when Tanya phoned him after the NHK trophy competition, upset about her placement. She was tired of them always looking down on her and acting like they were better than her. Listening to her grievances, it upset him too. The sport was too snooty and the politics of it really rubbed him the wrong way. He continued to gripe about it later when he met up with Eckert. According to Galuli, Eckert wondered out loud what would happen if Nancy were to receive a threat. You know, like the one Tanya had. Galuli didn't think it was a bad idea. It's unclear at what point sending a nasty message composed in block letters cut out of a People magazine turned into a plot to commit assault, but like most stupid ideas devised by even stupider people, it expanded quickly. Galuli testified that Eckert initially wanted to keep the plan a secret from Tanya, classified information to be shared on a need-to-know basis. But Galuli was concerned about how injuring a competitor might damage his lady love's psyche and her ability to perform. What a guy. He later claimed he told her about the plan right away, and to her surprise, Tanya thought it was a good idea. But she was doubtful of Eckert's ability to pull it off. Didn't he say he was going to have to sneak into Morocco or something? Ever the gentleman, Galuli assured her he knew people. And they could always pull the plug if things went awry. So there was no harm in trying. No harm to themselves, anyway. With the green light to proceed, Eckert reached out to a guy named Derek Smith, who agreed to do the deed, promising him cash and a lucrative job offer for its successful completion. This is where the story gets a little fuzzy again. You see, Smith didn't feel comfortable performing the hit himself, but he knew a guy who would, his 22-year-old nephew, Shane Stant. Apparently, the idea of bringing another man into the conspiracy didn't bother Galuli or Eckert at all because they told Smith to reach out. A day or two before Christmas, Uncle Derek reached out to Stant and asked him if he'd be willing to hurt someone for money. Instead of saying no, hanging up, or ratting him out to another family member, Stant asked him what it involved. Pleased with the response, Smith said he would be in touch and passed on his deeds to Eckert. Eckert called Stant back and told him the job involved taking down a skater by slicing her Achilles tendon. Where did that come from? Who knows? There's absolutely no evidence that either Tanya nor Galuli even mentioned cutting or maiming anyone, so I can only think this is one of those thought trains that occupy your mind when you're sitting at an imaginary airport waiting to board a bullshit flight to Liarsville. Either way, Smith refused. He wouldn't cut anybody, least of all a defenseless woman. But he was open to injuring her to the point where she'd be unable to skate. What a guy. With the Avengers assembled, Smith said he visited Galuli and Tanya at their home and quoted them a price of $4,500 for the job. Galuli bucked. What was with the price hike? It's not like they were hired to kill her or anything. He told Smith he would go as high as two grand and not a penny more. Which only makes me wonder how many other brilliant business decisions he's made. 
Once Smith called back and left a message on the couple's answering machine asking more details about the plan, Galuli balked and told Eckert to cancel the deal. But it was too late. Eckert told him that Smith and Stant were already on their way to Portland. More mission intelligence was critical. He asked his buddy to provide photos of Nancy and the location of the ice rink where she practiced. The photo was easy. Nancy had a lot of corporate sponsorship and pulling a picture out of advertising wasn't hard. But the skating venue? All Galuli knew was that it had ice. That information came from Tanya, he said, who called fellow figure skater Vera Morano on December 27th to find out. When Vera asked why she needed to know, Tanya said she had a bet going with Galuli. It sounded odd, but so was the overall vibe of the couple, so Vera didn't think anything of it. She called the USFSA and left the answer on their machine. When Galuli played the recording later, it was difficult to understand. It almost sounded like Vera was saying, Toonie can. Tanya called Vera back to find out for sure, even asking her to spell it out. Vera complied, and Tanya wrote out the answer, the Tony Kent Arena. While the couple was obtaining Eckert's so-called mission-critical intelligence, Smith and Stant arrived in Portland, drove to the bodyguard's home, and asked to set up a meeting with the couple for the following day. Galuli said Tanya would be in training, but he'd be around. The next day, Tanya finished practice early, and Galuli drove them down to Eckert's. Apprised of the appointment and anxious about her husband meeting with dangerous people, she told him she was concerned. He assured her he'd be fine and said he would call when it was over. He then handed her the keys and she drove to Kaluli's mother's house to wait. With the felon ship gathered, Eckerd got the meeting started. The rest of the details come from testimony and other evidence retrieved by law enforcement. Now, full disclosure, I don't speak more on. But this is kind of how it went down. The CEO and resident James Bond of the World Bodyguard Services was coy as he introduced his client to the would-be hitmen. He referred to Smith only by his first name and simply called Stant his friend. Stant greeted Galuli warmly by saying it was a pleasure to meet him, then fell silent, likely having been just given a cue by his uncle to shut his yap. Stepping up to take the lead, Smith told Galuli that he could solve his problems. Without hesitation, Galuli cut to the job description. He wanted Nancy out of the national championships. He told the sinister subcontractors he was willing to pay $6,500 and asked the team what they had in mind. Eckert returned to his list of dumbass plans ripped out of 80s action movies, cutting Nancy's Achilles tendon, using a beater car to run her off the road, or just kill her. But the rest of the group rejected them. Undoubtedly sensing the mental disconnect, Galuli repeated he only needed her right leg disabled, her landing leg. That's all Tanya wanted. The group agreed to that, and to refund Galuli's retainer if services weren't completed. Satisfied he had a pretty good deal worked out, Galuli phoned Tanya and asked her to pick him up. Once he was gone, Eckert pressed stop on the tape recorder he had covertly hidden under a paper towel. He recorded the entire meeting figuring he could use the recording to blackmail Galuli if he turned on them or refused to pay. Well, that and other things. I can't help but wonder if this is one of those tips he'd learned as a supposed mercenary or wannabe spy. 
And how many paper towels did he have lying around in order to make his camouflage blend in? Something tells me it was also littered with Kleenex and hand lotion. On the drive home, Tanya asked how it went. When he told her about the money-back guarantee, she laughed. Galuli said he felt pretty good about the meeting and that Smith was capable. He then told her, I think we should go for it. According to him, she agreed. The men asked for another photo of Nancy and her skating times. Tanya was given the duty of calling the Tony Kent Arena because of her familiarity with the skating lingo. According to Galuli, she phoned the arena, asking for Nancy's patch and freestyle times, and phoned again to confirm the address. The couple found two photos of Nancy in the World Team Handbook and Olympian magazine. He said Tanya told him to tear off the magazine's mailing labels, which included their home address. That night, they drove back to Eckert's with the requested intel and $2,700 in cash. Galuli says he paid Eckert while Tanya was having coffee in the other room with Eckert's mother. He remembered Tanya mentioning how pretty Nancy looked in the photo, and the couple was surprised by his mother's response. It seemed she knew about the plot, too. They returned home and waited. And waited. And waited. By January, he and Tanya were upset that the plot had apparently failed. Eckert advised patience and said it could still be done. For more money. At this suggestion, Galuli snapped back. Do I have stupid written on my forehead? Tanya pushed him to get Eckert to return the money, and during a late-night skating practice, Galuli asked Eckert to meet them at the rink. But when he arrived, Galuli agreed to pay more if they could pull it off before the Nationals competition. Tanya wasn't nearly as forgiving. She interrupted practice to confront the bodyguard herself, angrily asking why this thing wasn't completed. Lustered, Eckert said he didn't know. So the plan moved forward, and Smith and Stant prepared for the attack. They decided to strike while Nancy was still practicing in Massachusetts. If she missed the competition, it would all but guarantee Tanya's place on the team. Armed with a photo and bio, Stant flew the next day to Dallas, where he had a four-hour layover before continuing on to Boston's Logan International Airport, where he checked into the Hilton, under his own name. Forgetting his credit card, he wasn't able to rent a car. Desperate for a ride, he called his girlfriend and asked her to mail it. Lord knows the excuse he gave her for needing it or how he explained why he was in Boston, but he received it on December 30th. He rented a Chevy Cavalier and drove 80 miles to Cape Cod. And missed her. While Stan was still trying to adjust the seat and mirrors, Nancy was on her way to the next location. For the next several days, Stan staked out the Tony Kent Arena, moving his car every 30 minutes so as not to arouse suspicion. Investigators raised their eyebrows over the 30-minute self-imposed parking limit. To this day, they have yet to come up with a valid reason this would actually work. As a subcontractor of security-savvy Eckert, I imagine this could somehow be connected to that same line of so-called thinking. As the week stretched on, Stamp began getting impatient. He eventually called the arena on January 4th and said he had a daughter that wanted to meet Nancy. The woman who answered the phone told him Nancy had gone to Detroit to skate in the Nationals. So Stamp drove back to the Boston airport to return the rental car and jumped on a bus for Detroit. He called his uncle from the road and picked him up the next day from the airport. From there, the pair made their way to the Joe Louis Arena, all the while discussing the best place to launch the attack. The next day was a typical wintry day in Detroit. Stant bundled up, 
wearing a black leather jacket, brown hiking boots, and black leather gloves. In his pocket, he stuffed collapsible baton. The pair arrived early, Hobo, sitting on opposite ends of the arena, but in sight of each other. Stant psyched himself up, then gave the signal, standing up and then sitting back down. He was ready. Smith left to get the getaway car. As Nancy walked off the ice, her mind was a thousand miles away. She felt good. She had a good practice and was confident about her chances. As she walked down the corridor, a man approached. He pulled a small object out of his pocket and snapped the telescopic device downward, extending the weapon. Before she realized what was happening, the man struck her above the right knee. She fell to the ground in pain. The aftermath was caught on film with the skater infamously screaming, Why? Why? Stant ran towards the exit he located the day before. It had been unlocked yesterday. Now it was chained shut. Cornered and eager to avoid capture, he forced his way through the plexiglass at the bottom of the door, crawled through and made his escape. As he ran away, he heard someone yell, Somebody stop him! He found Smith, threw away the baton, and they drove away. Ignoring every impulse to run down the assailant and beat him to a pulp, Nancy's father rushed to her side and carried her into a changing room. Dr. Stephen Plomeridis was called to examine her. Thankfully, the attack didn't break her leg, but he later told the New York Times the attacker was clearly trying to debilitate her. Her knee was severely bruised and her quadriceps tendon swollen. As Nancy struggled to limp on the injury, attention turned to the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Could she skate? Medically speaking, Dr. Plomeridis didn't think the two-and-a-half-minute routine would cause any further damage. She was in peak physical shape, and the chances of her breaking a bone or tearing a joint were remote. But the pain would be excruciating. Did she really want to go through that? After consulting with her parents, trainers, and coaches, she decided to focus on her health and withdrew. The next day, Tanya went on to skate her way to first place. We'll pick up the story next week, so stay tuned. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. Frenemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.